Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. I'm your host, Dr. Jack West, Associate Clinical Professor at City of Hope Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area. And joining me on this episode is Dr. Matt Hellman, Associate Attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Let's talk about some timely practical issues. It's great that we have a subset of patients on immunotherapy who do extremely well for a long time, now even years, but the trials generally stop to immunotherapy after a couple of years, and some patients do well off of treatment, uh, but others relapse and may or may not respond on rechallenge. Given this uncertainty, I think what we see in practice is a lot of variability in what oncologists recommend for their fortunate patients who get out this far. Some really are inclined to continue treatment ongoing in the absence of progression or prohibitive toxicity, and some stop at two years and and then see what happens. What's your impression of what the data tell us or don't, and also your experience, because you have a lot of experience with immunotherapy, even going back years now. So what's your impression and practice for patients outside of a trial setting where that's mandated? I think you framed the the challenge exactly right, that there are these small group of people. Unfortunately, it is a very small group of people who achieve the transcendent benefit of immunotherapy, these durable responses lasting potentially years and potentially representing cure. But there, there is this challenge as we get longer and longer into their treatment about how to reach a comfortable decision related to either indefinite continuation of treatment or stopping at some point. And much as you said that there's variability in how um, other people are practicing, I think I would acknowledge that I have variability in terms of the way that I've approached this. I am not sure that there's a single right answer. I do feel comfortable with the idea that there are some people who do not need continuous treatment, who have the ability to, or have achieved essentially cure, or in a different way of calling it sterilizing immunity, wherein the treatment with immunotherapy has um, resolved their tumor. Anecdotally, I do have patients who began on um, the phase one study of nivolumab back in 2011, and then discontinued treatment in 2013, who are now disease-free and off treatment for the seven years ever since and nine years since they began treatment. And so these sort of uncommon examples, I think are proof that durable response can be achieved even without ongoing treatment. And that I do hope that cure is what we're delivering for these people. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, there are some people who relapse and there's no guarantee that resumption of PD-1 therapy at that time of relapse uh, will recover that. So my own approach is more personalized. It's important for me to understand the advantages that the patient sees. Sometimes a patient will feel 
incredibly anxious about the opportunity of discontinuing treatment. And in those cases, I sometimes try and nudge them towards a degree of comfort that their life might indeed go on without ongoing treatment, and they may have already achieved cure. And I do use some of these specific anecdotes of patients that I've had who have been off treatment for years. And in, in my heart, I hope to be able to deliver them this sort of perfect scenario of cure without treatment um, and the ability to permit them to resume so many parts of their life once again without being constantly tied to their treatment. But some people feel understandably anxious about um, discontinuing treatment. And I don't feel dogmatic enough to say that uh, they need to or should stop treatment. And so if I, if I understand that there, even as we talk about it and continue to talk about it, that continuing treatment is the source of their sort of comfort and solace, I wouldn't force anybody to stop. I think there are some tools that are emerging about how to try and guide this decision. And I, I do use imaging tests like a PET scan to see whether there are any viable um, residual uh, sites of disease that are metabolically active. And I'm also using um, ctDNA sometimes to try and query whether there are somatic variants that are detectable in the blood, oftentimes to try and build both my own and the patient's confidence that there's not cancer that we can see macroscopically and, um, uh, and to, to, to build comfort with the idea of stopping. So we just recently saw the publication of Checkmate 153 and Journal of Clinical Oncology that looked at nivolumab and stopping or continuing after one years in, pa- in one year in patients who hadn't progressed, but that was second line and really an unselected population compared to say trials or practice now where you might be giving immunotherapy to a much more enriched population of patients with high PDL1 or other features who might be more likely of a very gratifying response. Do you have any way that you reconcile these results or is it still just open territory in terms of just the heterogeneity of, of the different patients and the regimens they've been given and the response that they have? Because uh, as you say, you're, you're looking at whether they have imaging evidence or perhaps ctDNA evidence of residual disease. How do you frame the different results that we've seen right now? I think the Checkmate 153 results are useful in informing what not to do. And I think what not to do includes having a single approach and that that approach shouldn't be to stop at one year. I'm not sure it tells us what to do. And uh, so I think it, it, it has shown that stopping everyone at a year um, is, is not the right thing to do. It has been a helpful piece of data because it, I think it was a, a reasonable hypothesis to explore, but it, it highlights, of course, that there are people who remain at risk of relapse, that not everyone's achieved you know, the, the full depth of a durable cure, and that for at least some people, a continuation of treatment uh, seems to be the right thing to do. But there's a lot of work left to be done, I think, to further understand the optimal duration, whether that should be personalized, and whether uh, tools such as imaging and or CTDNA or others could help inform that decision in a way that 
permits the assessment of what's happening in real time in a given patient. I would also say that there might be an in-between answer of not continuing therapy every three weeks or six weeks, but maybe doing what has been done in with rituxan, you know, many years ago of, you know, looking at giving a dose every three months or a couple every six months. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any research looking at this approach that, that may be continuing indefinitely tethered to the infusion suite every few weeks is over-treatment, but is not stopping entirely. And that boost could be enough. Can you speak to whether that's been even explored or thought about in a clinical trial at this point? I, I don't have particular data to help guide that potential scenario. Um, I personally have not favored that approach, I think in part just because of the absence of information about whether episodic dosing is good, bad, or neither. I have tended towards an approach that's sort of either will continue treatment and sort of generally continue it in the sort of routine dosing schedule, um, though, of course, with substantial flexibility. I don't mean for people to be sort of tethered every, you know, specific interval to treatment. Vacation should happen, holidays should happen, life should happen, and we should work around those things. Or we'll stop. I, it's a very viable uh, thing to explore. But I, I think that the, the episodic dosing has felt sort of too uncertain, I think, from a biological perspective for me to sort of favor it over just sort of making a decision about continue or don't. Today, we have an array of different regimens. It could be pembrolizumab monotherapy or nevo-ipi combination, uh, nevo-ipi with chemo, the chemo stops. But particularly with chemo and pembro, you could be on pemetrexid pembro for a very long time. How much or little does the presence of ongoing chemo change your thoughts on longitudinal management in, in a setting like someone who's coming up on two years and who may be reluctant about stopping treatment because they're doing well and don't want to jinx themselves or are fearful of a relapse that they can't respond on rechallenge to. In, in that setting, does the presence of chemo and the potential for cumulative ongoing adverse effects lead you to, to maybe think of stop chemo, but uh, be more inclined to continue the immunotherapy? Or what is your approach in somebody who was on a Keynote 118 regimen? Yeah. I do find myself sometimes trying to like post hoc untangle what the patient was responding to, whether it was the chemo component or the immunotherapy component or both. I, I can't figure it out, but I often find myself trying to solve that riddle in order to help guide sort of what are, what's the important component to continue. But overall, I think my approach to the sort of those who are on maintenance, chemotherapy plus immunotherapy for a long time, I think my approach is essentially the same, that if they're deriving benefit from it and it is the sort of psychological solace of their sort of ongoing cancer care, um, I, I don't feel compelled to stop it, but I am also comfortable stopping it. And I suppose that's a, it's sort of a, a non-answer, but maybe one that's worth acknowledging to the larger sort of clinical field that I don't have just sort of one way of approaching it. 
No, I think that's a fair answer. I, I must say I'm concerned somewhat about about ongoing pemetrexid in people who may be responding if the, the immunotherapy is doing the heavy lifting for them. We think of pemetrexid as a generally very well tolerated, and it does lend itself to longitudinal treatment, but there aren't a lot of people who are on it for 18 months or two years or longer, and we just don't have that much experience to be completely assured that it is it is the safest thing to do if it's not even doing the the main contribution here and may just be leading to adverse effects. I, I've seen patients who develop renal problems or, or certainly cumulative myelosuppression and fatigue. And, and to me, that's just a concern if that's really the gratuitous or less essential component of the treatment. But as you say, I think one of the challenges with chemoimmunotherapy is having to try to disentangle whether it is one, the other, or both that is the more active ingredient. I think they, um, if there is something that sort of changes as we, as we get further out during treatment is sort of what is the threshold of toxicity that I feel willing to accept? And um, I think that as you get into one and two, uh, two years and beyond, even relatively uh, modest side effects and um, impacts on people's quality of life are enough for me to sort of really push or encourage for patients to discontinue. Uh, and that's true for immunotherapy as well as the chemotherapy component. So I sort of imagine the gradation in a way of sort of, for someone who truly feels fine, I'm happy to keep going. But in, as these things potentially do lead to cumulative side effects, or nagging challenges that we at sort of what one point may have glossed over, I do try and return to those things as, as examples of why there might be virtue in discontinuing. And sometimes that's in a, like a conversation that evolves, but um, I think keeping careful attention to sort of how any of these medicines are affecting people medically and psychologically and otherwise, I think that the, I think it's fair to have a sort of moving target in terms of um, how you decide about continuation. You remind me uh, a few of my patients who have had the most gratifying and longitudinal benefits of immunotherapy have complained, not all, but some about gradual escalating musculoskeletal complaints. And these are things that, as you mentioned, wouldn't necessarily be the ones that lead you to stop therapy in an urgent setting. But when they're on it for years at a time, and are gradually more uh, challenged, if not disabled, by these issues. I, these are not necessarily things I think as appreciated as they might be if they were the kind of things that people went to the emergency room for in the middle of the night, but you don't. You just, I mean, these are often patients who are in their 60s, 70s, or older who have knee pain or hip pain, and 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 you don't rush to say, well, that must be the immunotherapy. But I, I do think that that is an undertone that is underappreciated because it's so insidious and multifactorial in many people. But what is your impression? Have you seen something like this? Because it has led me to sway away from ongoing indefinite treatment in some people. And in, in those cases, I've generally found that their musculoskeletal complaints have improved after stopping. I think you're absolutely right to to highlight that particular complaint as a 
underappreciated symptom and one that can become insidious in people's lives. And is exactly you say, I think, as an example of where it can be worthwhile to, to discontinue treatment. Um, I think a similar sort of symptom has been just a, a low-grade sense of fatigue that I've wondered whether it could be treatment-related, whether directly or indirectly. And then um, itching or some other sort of minor dermatologic complaints also can be sort of long-standing and easy to sort of uh, overlook at, at one point during treatment. But as you get further and further out, you start to rebalance, like, what are we trying to accomplish here? And the, uh, those side effects uh, of which I think the musculoskeletal discomfort, um, achiness and so forth are a prime example. So I think that there's, there's good work to be done in terms of the longitudinal effects of immunotherapy and um, is a place in which, you know, we distinctly have to care um, because we're delivering that opportunity for a long life thereafter, there, there can be consequences that, uh, that we need to sort of address and, and be um, proactive components of optimizing the best life for our patients over a, you know, a time span that at one time had seemed infeasible. So it's a gift that is also, um, you know, brings new responsibilities. I think it is important to take a step back and think this is a champagne problem to have of, I mean, you know, who would have thought that we'd be evolved to the point of asking how little treatment can we give and still patients have patients do spectacularly well for years at a time with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. It's just hard to envision that 10 years ago. That's a fantastic point. I think it's worth emphasizing how that this is a relatively uncommon problem and in some ways is a fantastic problem to have. Sometimes we have conversations that feel sort of so wrought and burdened by like, well, what do you do at two years? You know, I think you're right to call it a champagne problem. And these are the sort of things that are, are an absolute gift. And so it really should inform sort of the spirit with which we tackle them. The, the, The uncertainty is true and we can sort of be, we can be sort of, uh, curious about how best to approach it, but it is a absolutely remarkable thing. And uh, I just you're you're right to point out that we shouldn't lose sight of um, just how profound and and unique this is. Can I ask also how often or if ever is the decision taken out of your hands because an insurer stops and says, "Well, we're not paying for more than two years," or is it has it always been in the range of your and your patient's judgment? I have only had it happen once where uh, I was sort of reminded or told that the label uh, is for two years of treatment. So it is um, uncommon. And then uh, finally, I'd like to turn to just some of your researches to the extent that you can speak to it. I, I am very intrigued by the concept of augmenting imaging with molecular testing with the with the uh, CT DNA perhaps to give a sense of when we can downshift whether that is stopping entirely or decreasing the frequency but let's just say take a break or stop treatment but also potentially if this could be an early indicator that could reassure people that you can track this and jump in and maybe have better 
luck with rechallenge if it's even before clinical relapse. Can you talk about what your research is looking at and where you could envision this going in the coming years? I think that the ability to use ctDNA as a complementary tool to help solve some of the otherwise radiologically ambiguous scenarios that we ta- that we sort of grapple with every day is extraordinarily compelling. There are, of course, loads of efforts related to ctDNA research and companies uh, you know developed around them. But somehow, I feel like it's almost still underappreciated the degree to which. Uh, this could fundamentally sort of change the way that we understand what's happening in our patients, open new opportunities for patient populations uh, to be studied in uh, clinical trials and for drug development, uh, and to help deliver the best treatments for our patients. It's already being used, of course, in clinic for the detection of uh, driver oncogenes to inform the uh, sort of the best um, targeted therapies and as a as a complement to tumor-based testing. But I'm I'm particularly intrigued with the ability of ctDNA to give us insight about the in vivo disease state, like what's happening in a patient in real time. And some of those scenarios that we don't have the ability to resolve with, with imaging right now include the adjuvant setting, where in, uh, in most cases, there is no detectable residual disease by a CT scan or PET scan, but yet we know that some patients have microscopic bits of disease that's already metastatic and will recur with time. And th- this is beginning now with clinical trials um, looking for ctDNA detectable disease and uh, embedding therapeutic interventions in that space, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, and again, I think I could see this being very helpful after chemo radiation, which is a murky mess Absolutely. most of the time in imaging. And, and of course, in the first few months of many patients on immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy, where we know you can see pseudo progression, but the consequences would be quite significant if imaging looks like patients may be potentially getting worse, but you don't want to stop treatment if it's actually helping them and you don't want to prolong treatment if they're getting worse while on it every three weeks. Absolutely. And I think in that early time point, a particularly uh, sort of vexing challenge has been what to do in patients with stable disease. In an early phase clinical trial, stable disease is almost meaningless in terms of whether, you know, a patient responded to a new drug or not. And in our correlative research, retrospectively, it's really challenging to figure out what to do with these patients with stable disease. Should they be bundled with responders or with non-responders? Should there be some arbitrary cut point at which we'd say they're a responder or not? And so in order to be able to bring sort of more resolution to our both our clinical research as well as our translational research, I really think we need to refine how do we make determinations of who with stable disease radiologically is actually benefiting. And so we've had two recent papers that have identified how the delta and ctDNA can help refine that radiologic assessment and to identify patients that indeed have sort of an in vivo response to immunotherapy and are likely to achieve long uh, responses. Those have inc- uh, included a paper on cancer discovery in collaboration with folks from AstraZeneca and then a paper in Cell in collaboration with Max Dean and his uh, team at Stanford. But both, I think, reports have demonstrated the same 
possibility to use on-treatment ctDNA dynamics to help complement radiologic tools and inform these ambiguous scenarios. Yeah, I'm really impressed that these are all early efforts, but I'm very impressed by how convergent and consistent the findings are. They're, of course, very compatible with what you might presume to understand, but we see this in targeted therapies and immunotherapy and across so many different tumor types and settings, early stage, late stage, that I I think there's very good reason to think this could be one of the absolute sea changes and improvements in the broad management of oncology in not the distant future, but the next three to five years. No, I absolutely agree. It is not a leap of faith. It is a sort of a conceptually intuitive way of examining what's happening in the tumor. And it helps us solve a problem that imaging, at least thus far, has not had the resolution to be able to solve. So it's it's not even competing with imaging. It's just a complement to a scenario that we don't have the resolution for. So I, I think it's uh, applicability is um, sort of a natural next step in sort of routine clinical trials as well as clinical practice. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. Congrats on the work you're doing. I think it is obviously timely and it is directly informing clinical practice. And I really appreciate your kind of bleeding edge approach to all of this. I look forward to the full array of data catching up and being able to to get this into broad practice. So thanks for taking the time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our listeners on behalf of ISLC and Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Jack West. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.